Are we? Yeah, there we go. Oh, it's part of the package, I see. All right, so in this class, for those maybe who haven't been in here before, the format is, uh, it's based on this passage from Hebrews, which is 12, 1 through 3. And the idea is we're sitting in a stadium. Well, we're not sitting. We're actually on the arena, and there's a stadium around us, and they're sitting. Some of them are on their feet, and they're, they're cheering us on. And it's people like Abraham and Moses and, and Peter and, and Paul, and those are the heroes of the Bible, but it's also the witnesses who have lived before us, those who lived in the second century, those who lived in the 14th century, people we've never even heard of, people who didn't make the cut when it came to writing history books, all right? Those are the people that God has with him in the stands cheering us on as witnesses to what we're going through and the fact that God worked in their lives. They're witnessing to that fact. And so let us, start in the middle there, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. That was the secret. That was what they did. That's how they ran the race. When they were in the arena, they fixed their eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. <clears throat> Just happened to think of this. Uh, last night I watched a movie uh, called uh, Women Talking. It's nominated for Best Picture this year. Women Talking. <clears throat> um, it's uh, It's got to be the most boring sounding movie that has ever been titled. <laughs> and it is Women Talking. But it's it takes place in a Mennonite community um, and it's Different women have different perspectives on what they should do about this situation. But there's this one lady who keeps going back to her horses. She's got two horses that she uses to get into town. And she said, you know, that reminds me of something about Claude and Jean, or whoever their names are. And uh, everybody groans whenever she says that because they know it's another vignette coming about her horses. But her, the points that she makes are really cool. And one of the points that she made was, I used to really not like that north road that went out of our little village because it's got so many ruts on the side. And I would get so distracted by them that I would kind of jerk the horses away from that rut and jerk the horses away from that rut. And I would just be all over the road. And it really made me anxious going down, especially one stretch of that road. But then I learned to fix my eyes on the distant horizon. And when I did that, it was smooth. I was able to ride much more easily. And that kind of came back to me when I was thinking of fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's so easy to get distracted by the ruts that surround us as we go through life. But if we'll fix our eyes on Jesus, who himself fixed his eyes on the, not the cross, but the, uh, the joy that was set before him, that's what he fixed his eyes on. And so because he was a, 
because he did that, he was able to endure the cross, scorning its shame. Okay, So that's the secret of getting through life. Don't look at life. Don't focus on life. Be aware of it, but fix your eyes on Jesus. And we're promised that those who do that, who fix their eyes on Jesus and who are walking in the light, will have fellowship with one another. So that's also the secret to unity, is to fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. I'm not big into titling my classes, but I thought if if this class were to have a title, it would have to be, y'all get it? I mean, Y-A-L-L-G-I-T, y'all get it, okay? So <clears throat> what this class is going to focus on are, are a couple of people uh, who focused the, the eternal truths of God into the very imperfect language of man, who were able to take God's vast cosmic truth and put it into such an imperfect vessel as langu- our language. What we're, I, I, remember I told you as teachers we like to give non-examples. Okay, let me give you, let me tell you what we're not talking about. We're not talking about dumbing down the truths of God. God's truths are vast, they're eternal, and and. They, they're uh, important to our lives. So important that we don't need to make flannel graph images of every lesson that we try to teach. Okay? We, we want to teach in three dimensions. We want to show uh, application of principles that we get in Scripture. So we're not talking about dumbing things down, and we're not talking about lying just flat out, well, you can't understand this, so let me give it to you in different terms. It's not really the truth. It's a lie, but it's close. Okay, that, We're not talking about that at all. Though in truth, if you think about it, the, the very moment we open our mouths and start to say something, we're starting to lie, <laughs> in essence, because there's no way to get what's in here in there. There's just no way. And, and you've experienced this if you've ever tried to explain a dream to somebody and it doesn't seem to be affecting them the way it affected you. <laughs> That's because they didn't experience it. You did. And it meant everything to you, but somebody else was thinking about passing the mustard or something. You know, it, it just didn't hit them like it hit you. Well, that's because our language is very, very imperfect. We use words because, really, that's all we've got. Okay? It does the job for the most part. But in the end, they're really too imprecise to capture the thing that's in a person's head. And add to that fact the, the fact that the other person is, is most likely not really focusing as much on what you're saying as what they're going to say in response. And then there's the distractions of the environment okay, that's going on. It's kind of pulling away from him, his own fatigue, okay, that's going to kind of bring down his ability to focus on what you're saying. It's a wonder that we're able to communicate at all, because we've got so much against us. 
Um, but the fact is, people have conversations. God blesses those conversations as imperfect as they are. But just so, there is a way that we can communicate that maybe is, is even a step above talking. And that's writing things down. Okay? Now, I say it's a step above it because it'll last longer than the spoken word. If you can write something down, somebody a thousand years from now may read it and get a peek into your head. Well, that's pretty powerful. You think about that, that invention right there is just staggering. For the, for the price of a Happy Meal, I can pick up uh, somebody who wrote something six, well, 4,000 years ago and enter their mind. And my goodness, that, how, does that, how is that even possible? Of course, today with Google, you can do it for free. But the very best communication, if you get right down to it, would be if I were to write something down and give it to you and then come back later and explain it, explain exactly what I meant. But first I gave you time to kind of chew on it and, and think about what I meant. And then when I go back later, I'm able to present it to you in a way that it all falls together and you begin to understand what was in my head when I wrote it down. And if you haven't caught it yet, I'm describing the Bible. You think about how the Bible works. God's Spirit inspired men to write down things that were in God's mind. We study those writings. We read them. We think about them. We meditate on them. We really chew on the message. I think I've mentioned this before, but the Hebrew word for meditation is Hagah. It's, you know what onomatopoeia is? You know where it sounds like the thing it describes? Hagah describes a lion gnawing a bone, trying to get every piece of meat off of that bone. Hagah. And I don't know how you pronounce it, but anyway, that's how I pronounce it. And, and that's what meditation is. You're, you're trying to get every bit of meat out of that scripture that you can. So God's spirit inspired men to write it down. We chew on the writing, we pray that we might understand the message, and God's Spirit, the same Spirit that wrote those things down, comes to us and shapes our thoughts and prepares us and helps us understand the message that He wrote in the first place. You just think about that for a moment. God has permitted His eternal truths to be represented infallible words. He doesn't seem to have any concern about that, though. Any concern that his message will fail. Probably the language that is the most rich that I've ever come across, the, the absolute most artistic language that I can think of is Hebrew. And I don't speak Hebrew, and I don't read Hebrew, I only understand a few letters, and that's because I've watched Sandy's videos. And the, what I've come out with, though, is the fact that those letters each mean something. Like uh, uh, bit, I think that's how you, is that bit, bit, or something like that? Yeah, okay. Uh, <clears throat> it gives the B sound, but it also represents a house. So if you have a word with bit in it, then 
house is part of that image that that word is. You put the images together and you kind of have a, a picture, a word picture that describes the thing. It's Bethlehem. Okay, tell us what Bethlehem means. It is house of, house of bread. Okay, Bethlehem. Where did Jesus born? Where was he born? Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus said, I am the living bread. Isn't that cool? There's stuff like that all through the Bible. You can, sometime on YouTube or, or just Google, uh, the gospel in Genesis 1.1. Yes, Pam? Bethlehem means house of bread. Literally, that's what the pictures are, house of bread. Google the gospel in Genesis 1.1. There's this guy that knows all about Hebrew, and he takes you through the actual pictures that are in Genesis 1.1, first word, in fact, and it points to the cross of Christ. I just, it's just staggering the, the levels of depth that Hebrew allows you to go into. It's, it's deep enough for the smartest scholar to drown in, but it's shallow enough that even a child can drink from it. So that's Hebrew, and that's an imperfect language. <laughs> I don't know if God chose it because it's such a rich pictorial language or not, but the fact is he has chosen imperfect languages to represent his eternal truths. I mean, you think about Bethlehem, just that example. We read that word, we sing it in the song, and we don't think house of bread when we're saying it or singing it. That's lost unless somebody shares it with us. And so if that's lost, oh my goodness, God, how can you do that? How could you have allowed that to be lost? Well, first of all, it's not lost. Okay, people are still talking about it. Second of all, it's okay. Calm down. His eternal truths are what the, the important point is. He, he's wanting to carry across those things that really will change a life. So, <clears throat> when you talk about reducing complex things to very simple patterns, that's what Jesus was all about when he came. He didn't come, he didn't even come speaking Hebrew. I mean, he could speak Hebrew, he could read it. He, he read from the scroll when he went to his hometown church. But he didn't speak it with the crowds. Okay, what he spoke with the crowds was what? Aramaic. Now, you didn't say it the right way. You're supposed to say Aramaic, okay? Because that's really how they would approach it. You know, there's Aramaic, and then there's Hebrew, okay? It's, it's posh. Well, Jesus didn't speak the posh language. He just spoke the, well, how you, how you doing today? What would you do this weekend? And can you get something for me at the grocery store? That's the language Jesus spoke when he spoke to people. And he allowed the eternal truths of God to be shared in that language. But it's not just the language. It's, it's the, the images, the, the thoughts, the principles that Jesus wanted to share. His message is wonderfully complex, but also very basic, very simple when you get right down to it. There are several different types of communication that Jesus used. Okay, um, well, that Scripture uses, in fact. God's used these 
forms of communication with his people all throughout Scripture. Dreams, for instance. Remember, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, had a dream. And in that dream, God communicated with him. And of course, there's Joseph in the Old Testament where you've got dream after dream and, and he's interpreting them. And God uses dreams to put his truths directly into the mind of another person. If you ask me, this is the best way of communication available to, to our experience. Because he's able to basically speak mind to mind when he, when he gives you a dream. That's why when you try to tell somebody about a dream that you've had, especially if you thought it was from God, and it doesn't really impact the other person like it impacted you, well, that's because they didn't have the dream. They didn't have that experience of God's message going straight into their brain. So they're trying to empathize with you from the perspective of someone who did not experience the same thing. So dreams is one way God speaks to man. I sometimes think if dreams, if we could speak to each other in dreams, we would do away with so many wars, so many misunderstandings, uh, and then I think, if we could speak to each other in dreams, my goodness, we'd see right into the heart of each other, and then we may not like what we see. So maybe, maybe the wars would cease, but the battles would increase. I don't know. But So dreams is just it's one way to communicate with people. We're not really going to talk about dreams, though, because I want to focus on what Jesus did when he was sharing the truths of God in his ministry. So we're not going to talk about the prophets. That's another way God communicated with his people. The apostles, the preachers. We're not going to talk about people, okay, the teachers and the evangelists and all that. What we're going to focus on are uh, what's recorded in Scripture as far as the written word of God. His commands, for instance. Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another. A new command I give you, love one another. How much as I have loved you? Some people call that the platinum rule. They consider that even above the golden rule. See, there's the iron rule. That's, you know, might makes right. The one who's strongest gets to make the rules. Then there's the one that's kind of above that, the silver rule. And this is the negative, the, the double negative, so to speak. Where you'll find this in a lot of religions, uh, including Judaism. What you don't want done to you, don't do to somebody else. Okay, that's pretty good. That's the silver, it's much better than the iron rule for sure. Then there's the golden rule. We know what the golden rule is it's very proactive, it's positive. And as far as I know, Christianity is the only one that focused on this aspect. Uh, do things to other people as you would have them do to you. Now, when I say Judaism, I'm talking about the Ju Jewish religion that man sort of helped develop. Uh, I'm not talking about Judaism in its essence that God put in Scripture, because you will find the golden rule in the Old Testament. But then this is the platinum rule, maybe a little more challenging than the golden rule. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other unconditionally. Love each other so much that you're not going to allow that person to walk down that path 
love that person so much that you will forgive them for the 47th time today that they've done something that you don't like, okay? Love like I have loved you. Okay, that's Jesus, uh, that's his command. He also gave each one of us a command, as well as his 11 by that point. Go into the world. Preach the gospel to every nation. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. See, one of the things he commanded them was to go into all the world, right? So that's why we get the commission on us too. We <clears throat> the Great Commission didn't start with Jesus at that moment. The Great Commission started with Jesus way back when he was talking to mankind and saying, I want to redeem you back to God. So those are commands. Then there's examples. Okay, the 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 people that modeled behavior, especially Jesus who is the model, the author, the perfecter of our faith. He is the one that we look to and we wear the bracelets. What would Jesus do, right? And you know they found the archaeological bracelet in the tomb. What would I do? And so they know that's the tomb of Jesus. <laughs> no. <laughs> but <clears throat> they, uh, what would Jesus do in this situation? Jesus, what would you do? And that's a command I mean, an example that he gave us to live his life in such a way that he represented the Father to mankind so that we can then look at his life, which was a very sweat and blood kind of life, and say, I want to be like that. I want to walk like that. So there's command, example, and what's the other Church of Christ one? Command, example, and... Inference, that's right. That's one you always hear in Church of Christ growing up. Command, example, and inference. You know, that's not actually in Scripture. Those three things have to be followed. Um, but in, inference would be we infer that uh, we're supposed to be doing these things or believing these things. Like, for instance, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, when you pray, don't do it big like the hypocrites do, the Pharisees. Uh, when you give to the poor, don't make a big deal out of it, like the Pharisees. <laughs> when you fast, put oil on your head. Or today he would say shampoo. You know, just take a shower. Don't look any different than you would if you weren't fasting. He didn't actually say fast. He said, when you fast. So there's an inference that we can draw from that, that Jesus assumed his followers at some point would fast. Now, when he was called on the carpet by those Pharisees who said, your followers don't fast, then he said, that's because the bridegroom is still with them. <laughs> we're having a party. We're, we're enjoying seeing God with man. Uh, when There will come a time when my followers will fast. So that's an, we can draw an inference from that that, you know what, maybe we're supposed to be about the business of fasting. It's a whole different subject that we don't talk very much, especially in West Texas around Sunday morning time <laughs> when everybody's kind of thinking, where am I going for lunch? Uh, it's not a good time to talk about fasting, is it? Uh, fasting is not a, a dietary plan. It, it's, it's not something to help you lose weight or to be healthy. 
fasting is a, a physical act to grow your spirit toward God, to align yourself with God. You know how you have to have your tires aligned every once in a while? That's what you're doing when you're fasting. You're humbling yourself before God so that you can align yourself with his will. And that's all I'm going to say about fasting. Command, example, parables. Jesus used parables. There's the longer parables, like uh, the, the, the sower of the seed and the different kinds of soil. Okay, you, would, you might almost call that a metaphor. But then there's the shorter parables. Uh, the, the kingdom of God is like. And so you get the kingdom of God. Eh, it's, it's like a woman when she finds a coin and she celebrates with all her friends. That's what the kingdom of God's like. Because when you find it, you want to celebrate with everybody, okay? So that's a, a shorter simile is the English term that we give to a, a shorter parable when it uses like or as. The, uh, there's another way that, God, that Jesus shared God's truth, though. And here's where we're going to kind of hunker down just for a few minutes um, because I want to look up some scriptures here that talk about this kind of teaching, okay? It's not a parable, it's a paradox. And so we're going to talk about how paradox helps us understand the truths of God. Mark 8.35. Now, I will pass the mic for this. Somebody raise a hand and show me that you're going to read Mark 8.35 because then you're going to read something else too. That's okay. All right. Now, the first thing is... Mark 8.35, and then you're going to read from Mark 10. Listen to the paradox in Mark 8.35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Okay, that's all we're going to look at there. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. You're going to read verses 38 and 39. This says almost the same thing. comes from a little bit of a different angle. But again, it's a paradox. Go ahead. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I was baptized with? This is Mark 10, verse 38 and 39. Okay, Mm -hmm. I guess I... We can, they answered. Yeah, go go ahead, because I I think we're going to get there. Okay, Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. So that's that's it. Okay, well, I wrote down the wrong one. I bet it's Matthew 10, verses 38 and 39. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And then John 12, verse 25. Somebody get that right quick. John 12, 25. Terry's going to be the mic man. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Okay, these three paradoxes. Uh, can I have one more volunteer to read Mark 9.35? And Terry, would you mind taking it to whoever is going to read? Pam is fine. Okay. So these three paradoxes are all saying the same thing about whoever finds their life. What, what is it saying? What's the essence? <clears throat> Sorry. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it, basically. <clears throat> what is the point of that paradox? Okay. Oh, go ahead, Pam. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Okay, so it's probably early in the morning to be <clears throat> demanding that you decipher a paradox. Sorry. <clears throat> but uh, the, the truth is, if we don't think about these paradoxes a little bit, we're going to miss the message. So the gist of the other paradoxes is simply, if you go for this world, you're going to lose God. If you go for God, you'll get God and you'll get the world, by the way. <laughs> so if you want to gain life, be ready to lose your life. Those who lose their life, and he's not just talking about when the tombstone is raised. He's talking about as you go, like uh, Romans 12, 2. Yes. <clears throat> So I think the big paradox is that God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are completely selfless towards one another. Mm. Good. And Jesus also says that any house divided against itself cannot stand. Mm -hmm. And so if we desire to be in eternity with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then we must also take on a spirit of complete selflessness. Complete surrender, that's good. And, yeah. and so Christ is saying, unless you become like me, unless you are willing to lay down your life for others, then, then you can't be with me. You good, can't, You yeah. can't come to be with me. You, because you, if you are trying to be selfish at all, <clears throat> then you are dividing the house. Right. And, and you've nailed that paradox on its head because uh, that's in essence. I can apply this to marriage and you'll get it just like that. Those who are married or have been married. If you go into marriage looking for what you're going to get out of it, you're not going to enjoy your marriage very much, and neither is your spouse. But if you go into marriage ready to surrender yourself to that marriage relationship, you will gain all kinds of benefits that you thought you were giving up when you were surrendering yourself, you see. Pam, did you want to say something? The last scripture, Mark 9.35. <clears throat> You've got the microphone, so did you want to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I was going to read this on chapter 4 in Ephesians, chapter yes. 4. Um, it says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherein ye called, when all loneliness and meekness with long suffering forbearing one another in love. It says, in endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, even as they are called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and the Father of all, who is above all and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. <clears throat> Wherefore he said, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity, captivity captive and gave up gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first unto the lower parts of the earth? He descended in the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, so the, the point there is unless you humble yourself and are ready to commit yourself fully to this relationship, you will not get to see the benefits that you were holding on to when you were trying to just do it yourself. That's good. Thank you. The, uh, the, the point of paradox, and if we were in India... I wouldn't even have to be teaching this because they're very comfortable with paradox. In the West, when we see the two things that oppose each other, apparently, we want to resolve it. Which one's right? Okay, how can God be three and God be one? And I mean, they had conferences about this. But the point of paradox is not to resolve it, not to find the answer where they're both right. The point of paradox is to hold that tension of apparent opposition so much that we become comfortable with the unresolved tension of the paradox. Uh, this is really deep. I'm sorry about that. But, but, but that's the essence of paradox. You have to be comfortable <clears throat> with a mystery. We don't like that in the West. We want answers. But maybe that's why in the East they are able to grasp truths about God that we still struggle with today. We, tr we still try to figure out, did Adam have a belly button? You know, all kinds of answer questions that, that we can't seem to resolve. But the fact is, God doesn't need us to resolve those things. He says, live with the mystery and accept on faith that this is true. All right. We're going to make a quick transition. Uh, parables, paradoxes, commands, examples, those are all ways to take God's truths and put them into failed human understanding. Okay, That's exactly what our two witnesses did when they lived in the history of the church. They lived in 1384 well these are the death years of these men 
John Wycliffe, 1384, Jan Hus, 1415, so fairly close to each other, their drive was to get the truths of God into the hands, into the comprehension of everyday man. So by, let's see, skip that, we don't have time. John Wycliffe, according to tradition, Wycliffe is said to have completed the first English version of the Bible. Okay, the, He used the Latin Vulgate as his model and wrote in Old English um, the Scriptures. Some say it was just the Gospels that he did. Uh, some say, no, he, he actually did a, a good job doing every bit of Scripture. But under his guidance, the whole Bible was translated, at least. He was an Oxford don. He, <clears throat> he knew his stuff. He was actually ordained by the Catholic Church to be a minister to the priests who worked in the Catholic Church there, uh, a bishop of sorts, and used that authority that he was given to get this out. Now... That doesn't sound like a big deal to us who have the message and we have the NIV and the ASV and all that. Believe me, in that day when they've been using the same language for Scripture for a thousand years, it was a big deal to come from Latin into anything. I mean, they were probably saying about the same thing that we did about the King James. If it was good enough for Paul, it was good enough for me. But the fact is it wasn't written in Latin originally. So <clears throat> Wycliffe would get to see the publication of his Wycliffe Bible before his death in 1384. Uh, he, he tended to be literal to a fault, so there are some weaknesses in it. But the point is he was trying to get the Bible into the language of the common man. Um, if you've ever had like an a English teacher, one of your teachers in high school, read from Canterbury Tales um, in the language of Chaucer. All right, that's, that's about what it would sound like. Uh, I'm not even going to try to read the passage I have for here. The other person, Jan Hus, one thing, another thing you have to understand about these guys, they were Catholics. If you were to say you began the Protestant movement, the, the Reformation, they would be horrified. No, no I'm a Catholic, born and bred. Uh, this is how I'm going to die. Well, Jan Hus did actually die in flames at the behest of the Catholic Church because he dared to challenge one of the teachings of the Catholic Church that was going around at that time, which was indulgences, the selling of forgiveness. If you drop some coins into this collection plate, you will be forgiven your sins. Uh, Remember back in the Crusades, they were promised forgiveness of their sins if they went on the crusade. Jan Hus said, that's not right. You should, any farmer behind a plow should be able to go directly to God, not even have to go to confession, and say, forgive me for my sins, and he will be heard. That was heresy, and they burned him at the stake for it. So I'm, I'm really plowing through here, but I'm trying to get to the point that and come back to the point that these truths 
that people are sharing in the language of the common man at the time were the truths of God put in very simple form so that people could understand. It was no longer a Latin Bible that you had to go to a priest and say, tell me again what John 3.16 says because I just can't remember those Latin words. And he would tell you and then he'd give you the gist of it. Okay, Sorry we don't have time for any more discussion. But the point is today God requires his people to share the gospel with others in ways that they can understand. It does not have to be too complex.